is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. Fox News settled their defamation suit with Dominion Voting Systems, averting a trial. Damn it! I want my trial. I want it. You were supposed to provide me six weeks of delicious content. I wanted to see Rupert Murdoch put his hand on the Bible and burst into flames. By now, everyone, I mean, unless you're stuck inside the Fox News bubble, knows that Dominion has settled their lawsuit against Fox News for $787.5 million, or roughly half of what they were suing for in the first place. The defamation case will not conclude with a trial or an on-air apology. Rupert Murdoch's legacy is forever sealed as the network that sought to undermine American democracy one primetime segment at a time. And while many of us wish that Dominion hadn't settled without fucker Carlson having to grovel in front of his brain-dead audience, it's a sizable win for Dominion. This way, they'll get their cash immediately with the least amount of headaches in the end. Even in the best-case scenario, had Dominion gone to trial and won, the case would have automatically gone into appeal, and it might have been years before Dominion ever saw a dime. The apology, as weak as it was, didn't show up on air, but it did show up in writing. We are hopeful that our dis- sorry. We are hopeful that our decision to resolve the dispute with Dominion amicably instead of the acrimony of a divisive trial allows the country to move forward from these issues." Unquote. Maybe not a great day for democracy, but Dominion seems okay with it. The conspiracy theories, the lies about our election, and all the other false fucking claims about the 2020 election have still not been put down in any sort of definitive manner. And unless they are, I predict that the 2024 election will be infected with more of the same. But Dominion says that they are still going after the MyPillow guy, Mike Lindell, as well as Newsmax. Both could easily be bankrupted by Dominion if those suits go forward. Dominion (laughs) also has a defamation case against Rudy Giuliani, also for $1.3 billion. They, that's a lot, man. They are suing Rudy for everything he's got, which at this point, I believe, is a stolen CVS shopping cart full of empty Merlot bottles and a jar full of spare teeth. And remember that all the discovery made during this case against Fox is still out there. Now, Fox's bad reputation has only been made worse. But will it matter to their viewers? Me personally, I doubt it. I think in this case, I don't think it really would have mattered to the people that we're trying to reach to change their hearts and minds. The people who are loyal viewers of Fox, who believe what Tucker Carlson, who believe what Sean Hannity was saying. And even if they had to go on set and give a 20-second apology, in the era that we live in now of fake news and believing only what you want to believe, I would assume that the majority of those viewers wouldn't believe the apology anyway. We've all heard the lawyers and the pundits saying that the Dominion case laid the groundwork for pending cases to follow. And there are at least two more cases in the works. Smartmatic, also an election technology company, filed a $2.7 billion defamation lawsuit and said in its complaint that Fox knowingly aired more than 100 false statements about them. 
A day after the suit was filed, Fox Business canceled the Lou Dobbs show. And Smartmatic named Dobbs as a defendant. So no coincidence there. And just this Friday, a New York judge denied Fox's appeal, so the case is moving forward, though no date has yet been set for trial. That's right, Joe. Abby Grossberg is alleging that specific Fox News attorneys intimidated and coerced her into giving misleading or false answers in her September deposition for the Dominion lawsuit against Fox. The new filings today go into stunning detail about the specific instructions she was given. For example, to not recall things, things she absolutely had recollections of, or to misleadingly describe specific instances of pre-taped interviews as live. Grossberg and her attorneys allege that Fox News was trying to set her up as a scapegoat for the false claims about the election, and that this was an organized effort from the top. And then there's Abby Grossman, the Fox News producer who was fired after she came forward with her own allegations against Fox this last March. She worked with Maria Bartiroma and Tucker Carlson, and now she's filing two lawsuits against the company saying that Fox's lawyers had pushed her to give a misleading deposition in the Dominion case and that she barely survived the hostile and discriminatory Fox work environment. Now, you'd think that after all those lawsuits against Roger Ailes and Bill O'Reilly that Fox would have learned their lesson. Well, sorry, they didn't. And the truth is, Fox as is has been a cash cow for Rupert Murdoch. The old dog doesn't think that he needs some new tricks. It's just the cost of doing business. So in that spirit, Fox is denying all of Abby Grossberg's claims. And I'm betting that they settle before it even goes to court. They made a terrible mistake, what they did. It's all going to come out why they did that. Because it doesn't make sense when you go into mediation for our First Amendment right of free speech and you make a deal, a dirty deal behind closed doors. And I'll tell you what, we're out here, I'll tell you where mine ends. Mine ends when those machines are melted down and turned into prison bars, and we've got everybody going that was behind this going, let us out, we're sorry we tried to take your country. So the Republican-led House has had a rough week. Well, at least the Republicans in the House have had a bad week. First, on Monday, the House Judiciary came for a field hearing on crime here in New York City, and they just got really weird. Even the Wall Street Journal called the hearing partisan bickering. Here in Manhattan, the scales of justice are weighed down by politics. For the district attorney, justice isn't blind. It's about looking for opportunities to advance a political agenda. Let me be very clear. We are here today in lower Manhattan for one reason and one reason only. The chairman is doing the bidding of Donald Trump. Now, we're not going to go deep into this, but Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan district attorney that charged Trump in the Stormy Daniels hush money case. So with that, Jim Jordan, Trump's favorite pit bull at the moment, summoned Bragg to D.C. And when Bragg wouldn't come, the judiciary thought that they'd come to him. Look, I think it's very clear that this is a political stunt, that Jim Jordan, uh, two weeks after Donald Trump was indicted, has decided to come to Manhattan to try to attack the Manhattan district attorney who charged Donald Trump. And what makes it even worse is the reporting that Jim Jordan and others in the House uh, Republican conference have been coordinating and colluding with Donald Trump in, to push forward forward with this investigation. It was all untoward and terribly sad, especially for the victims that Jordan's clown court exploited. 
But just so you know, Columbus, Ohio has three times the amount of violent crime than New York City. So as far as I'm concerned, fuck off Jim Jordan. In a hearing on Wednesday of the House Homeland Security Committee, Eric Swalwell took Marjorie Toilet Green to the woodshed for her Trump-aligned stance against law enforcement. Now, she and Trump have repeatedly attacked any federal law enforcement agencies that might be investigating Trump. And they love to say, defund the FBI. And does anti-police rhetoric put targets on the back of law enforcement for their safety? Congressman, uh, it does. That's why I'm disturbed about a recent tweet from the former president that says Republicans in Congress should defund the Department of Justice and the FBI. I'm also concerned about people on this committee and their own anti-police rhetoric. This is a defund the FBI campaign effort. Again, thousands of FBI agents who work hard every day to take bad guys off the streets. In fact, after the FBI raided Mar-a-Lago, someone armed to the teeth went to an FBI field office to try and kill FBI agents. It concerns me that there is this anti-police rhetoric that's happening amongst some in the MAGA Republican Party because they vote against police funding that was included in the COVID relief package. They vote against police reform efforts that would put millions of dollars in community police officers on our streets, Swalwell said. Swalwell also went after her for giving aid and comfort to January 6 rioters in D.C. jails while ignoring the valor of the D.C. police. But then again, that's just fucking Marge, always doing her MAGA best to defame and intimidate the forces of good. That was quite entertaining from someone that had a sexual relationship with a Chinese spy, and everyone knows it. But I moved to take her words down. Completely inappropriate. Yeah, stand by just a second while we research the rule. Um, give me just a second. Now on Wednesday at the same hearing, Toilet Green went after Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. And for some unknown fucking reason, Marge and the gang love to blame Mayorkas for problems at the southern border. But Republicans systematically vote against funding for more help at the border. So you see the issue? You see the hypocrisy? These hearings are more like a reality TV trial than actual inquiries. And as entertaining as Miss Green might be, she's terrible for the country, as well as proof that Kevin McCarthy has lost all control of the House. How long are you going to continue this outrage, complete outrage, where China is poisoning America's children poisoning our teenagers, poisoning our young people. How long are you going to let this go on? Congresswoman, let me assure you that we're not letting it go on. We are fighting this. No, I reclaim my time. You're a liar. You are letting this go on and the numbers prove it. You can't lie about the facts, Secretary Secretary Mayorkas. Uh, Chair asked the uh, gentlelady if um, she wishes to seek unanimous consent to modify or withdraw her remarks. I will not withdraw my remarks. Consulting the rules of the House uh, when we strike, uh, it does terminate the time of the individual who is speaking. So uh, the gentlelady is no longer recognized. Now, when Republicans aren't going to war with law enforcement, they're going after our kids. 
In Iowa, senators passed changes to Iowa's child labor laws in the middle of the night on Tuesday, which will allow 14 to 17-year-olds to work longer hours. Charlie Wishman, president of the Iowa Federation of Labor, argues those changes are bad for Iowa teenagers. Once you get over about 20 hours a week, that's when kids' grades start to drop. That's when kids start dropping out of school. That's when test scores drop. He also worries the bill could put kids in danger. It still does allow kids to work in assembly. It still allows kids to be working in factories where there are explosives. It, there are still plenty of dangerous occupations out there the kids are now going to be allowed into. I mean, this after state legislators diverted funds away from public schools to fund private schools instead. 90% of Iowa students go to public school. So kids, if you fail in school, no worries. You can go right to work at some minimum wage, maximum physical labor job. I mean, this is so crazy. They can't find migrant workers in Iowa, so someone needs to pick the fields. I mean, right? Breaking news here at home. Authorities in Kansas City speaking just moments ago after the shooting of a 16-year-old black teen who rang the doorbell at the wrong home looking to pick up his siblings. Prosecutors in Clay County just now announcing charges against the 85-year-old man who shot him. 16-year-old Ralph Yarrell is recovering tonight after being shot in the head. This is so fucking stupid, I don't know what they're doing. Now two shootings of young people who mistakenly showed up at wrong houses in two separate states have attracted national attention and should renew the debate over so-called stand-your-ground laws because this fucking shit goes way beyond simply seeking to protect property and into the realm of paranoia and I'm looking at you Fox News they are the things that happen all the time a mixed-up address pulling into the wrong driveway or confusing one car from another Yet remarkably, for a third time in a week, seemingly innocent moments of confusion have led to bloodshed. From Kansas City, where a teen who approached the wrong doorstep is recovering from two bullet wounds. To New York State, where a 20-year-old woman was fatally shot after the car she was in accidentally drove up the wrong driveway. And now in Elgin, Texas, a high school cheerleader has been shot and seriously wounded after her friend apparently approached the wrong car. A string of tragedies unconnected, except for the fact in each case someone reacted with a gun. A cheerleader was shot in Texas because she accidentally got into the wrong car. I mean, you can't make this shit up. When she apologized, the guy just opened fire. She and her fellow cheerleaders survived, but will civil society? I mean, our kids don't stand a chance until we do something about guns and gun laws. It is a national brain damage, and it is deadly, and it is eroding the foundation of actually what makes this a functional, free, modern society. Now, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre told reporters on Tuesday, and I quote, let me just lay out, sadly, what we have seen these last couple of days. Four young people killed at a Sweet 16 party in Dadeville, Alabama. Two killed and four others were injured on Saturday night in a crowded public park in Louisville. 
A bright, young, loving 16-year-old kid, Ralph Yarl, shot in the head in Missouri after ringing the wrong, the wrong doorbell. And we just learned a few hours ago, I mean literally 12 hours ago, about a young woman in upstate New York who was killed for turning down the wrong driveway. And these are just some of the tragedies that actually have made the headlines. I mean, folks, this shit has to stop. When do we say enough is enough? When do we say that we love our families, we love our children, we love our neighbor's children more than we love guns? And in a follow-up to a story that we've been following about Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, allegations that Thomas probably violated federal ethics laws in his dealings with Republican mega-donor Harlan Crow have been sent to a committee of federal judges responsible for addressing errors or omissions in the filing of financial disclosure reports. Thomas was legally allowed to exclude certain things provided by Crow from his disclosure forms, like the frequent trips to a vacation home, but other exclusions were a violation of the law, such as the years of private airplane and yacht travel and the sale of his mother's home to Crow. Thanks to Senators Sheldon Whitehouse and Hank Johnson, who requested an investigation into Thomas's failure to disclose travel and real estate deals. I mean, seriously, a hearing is now being organized and there's talk of referring the matter to Attorney General Merrick Garland. Now, I hate to say this because I really want Merrick Garland to be a successful Attorney General, but so far, nothing has fucking come out of that office. So will something come out here? I don't know. I personally fucking doubt it. Now, Sheldon said in a recent interview, and I quote, you keep banging away at something and then one day the world changes and progress opens up. So I'm with White House and let's keep banging away. And now for the main event. Today we welcome for the first time one of the most dialed-in journalists of the last several decades. I'm referring to Jane Mayer. Mayer has been a staff writer at The New Yorker since 1995. As the magazine's chief Washington correspondent, she covers politics, culture, and national security. Previously, she worked at The Wall Street Journal, where she covered the bombing of the U.S. Marine barracks in Beirut the Gulf War, and the fall of the Berlin Wall. In 1984, she became the paper's first female White House correspondent. She is the author of the 2016 Times bestseller, Dark Money, the hidden history of the billionaires behind the rise of the radical right. She also wrote the 2008 New York Times bestseller, The Dark Side, the inside story of how the war on terror turned into a war on American ideals, which was named a National Book Award finalist. She is also the co-author with Jill Abramson of Strange Justice, also a National Book Award finalist, and with Doyle McManus of Landslide, the unmaking of the president 1984 through 1988. She has won numerous prizes and awards, including a Guggenheim Fellowship and the Nellie Bly Award for investigative reporting. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so I'm so glad to have you on the show, Jane. And let's just jump right into it. Because 
You, Jane Mayer, have been watching Clarence Thomas for many years now. In fact, you wrote a book about him in 1993 called Strange Justice. I wonder, has Thomas's lawless trajectory on the court surprised you much in light of what's been going on? I have to say in one word, no. <laughs> As someone who's watched Clarence Thomas for all these years, I, you know, for me, the biggest surprise is it's taken this long to catch up with him. I always um, expected that trouble would ensue, but um, it's taken a very long time. Well, tell us. I mean, tell me about the book, Strange Justice. What did you find about him in 1993? Don't be shy with my, you know, with my listeners here, because we're all sitting on we're all sitting on edge. I mean, look, nobody wrote it better than the New York Times, the way I see it, when they stayed in their opening paragraph that Americans have long viewed the Supreme Court as more trustworthy and less nakedly political than other parts of the government, right? Or at least that's the way that Americans used to feel. Not anymore. I certainly have no faith in the Supreme Court as it stands right now. On top of that, I have no faith in the DOJ. So tell us, what did you learn in 93 in your book, uh, Strange Justice? And then kind of compare it to what's going on now between Thomas uh, Harlan Crow, Jeannie Thomas, at January 6th insurrection. There's a lot here to unmask. There is a lot here. Um, so Strange Justice is a book I wrote along with Jill Abramson, an old friend of mine from high school who went on to become the editor of the New York Times. She's an incredible reporter. And it took the two of us three years to research this book. Basically what happened was... Um, in Clarence Thomas's confirmation hearings, he was accused of sexual harassment by Anita Hill, a woman he supervised at work, another lawyer. And um, it all came out during the confirmation hearings, and they were both, both he and Anita Hill, um, faced off in this unbelievable confrontation in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee, which was televised at the time. And you couldn't tell. It was like a really great trial. You couldn't tell which was telling the truth. Clarence Thomas claimed that it was a high-tech lynching, that's what he called it, because he was a conservative black uh, lawyer who thought differently from the liberal orthodoxy, and he claimed this was just political vengeance. Anita Hill um, was incredibly persuasive, um, soft-spoken, honest-seeming. It was really hard to imagine why would she make this up? Uh, what's in it for her? Certainly there was something in it for him to say that it never happened because he wanted to be confirmed to the Supreme Court. So Jill Abramson and I watched these hearings. It took us three years to interview everybody we could find to try to figure out which of these two people was telling the truth. And we were open. We were Both of us were reporters for the Wall Street Journal. We're not that political. And we, we were just going to get to the bottom of this story come hell or high water. We interviewed hundreds of people. And after we interviewed all these people, we came to the conclusion that the preponderance of evidence suggested Clarence Thomas lied under oath during his confirmation hearings. He perjured himself. Um, it wasn't 100%. You never know 100%. But put it this way, everything Anita Hill had said about him, which was that he had this proclivity for really far out, bizarro, um, watching pornography and describing it of, you know, kind of gross stuff. 
um, and really embarrassing her as he described it to her and she'd ask him not to, but he'd keep going. All of that was exactly in line with what Clarence Thomas's friends said he loved to do. He was a huge porno freak when he was at Yale Law School. Um, people who knew him well said this thing. Um, and, and and he and his um, his various witnesses during the confirmation hearings basically sort of made this that made it seem like it was impossible that such a virtuous person could ever speak in such ways as she had described. That it just was so uncharacteristic of him. And what Jill Abramson and I found after interviewing a ton of people was this was very much his modus operandi. It was exactly how Clarence Thomas was. And um, so it seemed that Anita Hill was telling the truth. The other thing we found in, in that is revealed in Strange Justice, and um, I feel you know that that it's really worth thinking about all these years later, is that 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 there were other women who had the same experience who tried to testify during those confirmation hearings and never got a chance. So it really it really cemented the idea that there was a pattern of behavior on the part of Clarence Thomas, and then he lied. He lied under oath to get confirmed. So, um, and he came out of those hearings so belligerent. I mean, the way that he conducted himself, um, if you remember how how um, Brett Kavanaugh was during his confirmation hearings, when he pushed back against Christine Blasey Ford, what he was doing was a Clarence Thomas. It was just an imitation of how Clarence Th Thomas was during those hearings. And 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 Clarence Thomas has seemed belligerent and angry about um, you know and bitter about so much ever since those hearings that it that's why I said in the beginning of the show it seemed like a matter of time that something would go wrong because that he has been so wound so tight and so angry and um and and kind of contrarian and perverse that you know the these issues of of not being completely honest about his financial disclosures are completely in line with not being completely honest in his confirmation hearings and 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 then refusing and sort of defiantly um refusing to comply with the very few regulations there are for ethics for supreme court justices that seems very clarence thomas too he he just resists having to kind of go along with what other people want him to do. So at any rate, I, I feel like this story was almost foretold in the history. <laughs> well, it's funny because I saw also in the New York Times in the same article that the Supreme Court right now is, <laughs> I mean, you can't make this shit up. This is the Supreme Court we're talking about. They're less trusted than organized religion, organized labor, or public schools. I mean, there was a whole survey that was done, including including the fact that, what did they say, that in the year 2002, 50% of adults in this country had a lot of confidence in the Supreme Court. Whereas in the most recent poll, which I think was done last year, only 25% gave the same answer. So you got only a quarter at best of this country that has any faith in the Supreme Court of the United States of America. That's screwed up. 
I mean, it's a terrible thing because the country, I mean, you're the lawyer of the two of us here, Michael, but the, the country, as you know, is is held together, knit together by its faith in the rule of law, that the courts will do the right thing, that there's equal justice for everyone. All those all those important bedrock principles are uh, require the country to have faith in the fairness of the courts and particularly the United States Supreme Court. And so, you know, it's it's the credibility and, and faith in the court have, have cratered, as you're describing it, in the last couple of years. And why is that? Well, it's not just because of ethics scandals like Clarence Thomas. Um, I hate to say it, but it's also because of what's happened during the Trump years with the court. Um, as you know, um, there was an open seat during Obama's presidency, which ordinarily would have gone mm-hmm. for Obama, Obama to fill. And he he nominated Merrick Garland. But there was a, a kind of a really hardball political game played by by Mitch McConnell in the Senate, who held open that seat, even though it should have gone to Obama. Everybody knew this. It was just an incredible, I mean, you could admire maybe McConnell's hardball game. He won. He kept that seat open for Trump. But a lot of people in this country, half the country's Democrats, and they look at the court and they look at that seat, which is now filled by Neil Gorsuch, and and they, they feel it's been stolen. And that's begun to really politicize the, those political games that were played during the Trump years with the court have made a lot of people think it's just another branch of politics and the judges are just, um, you know, uh, politicians in black robes. That's how people see it now. And I think a lot of that is because of Trump. Do you? Yeah, I do. I, I, I do. And I think the political discourse that we're currently facing every single day is it's just um, enigmatic for exactly what's going on here right now as it relates to the Supreme Court. So, for example, you take liberals, right? They already hated Clarence Thomas, and they're angry. They're as angry as hell over what you know what Clarence Thomas has done. Then, of course, you turn around and you take a look to see the um, you know the conservatives who consider Clarence Thomas to be this great, you know, this great legal mind, this great justice of the Supreme Court, and so on. And they, of course, turn around and tell you that this entire controversy is overblown. It's a witch hunt. It's, again, you know, the liberals trying to, you know, control the conservatives and and so on. I mean, it's the same shit that you see when you see somebody like Jamie Raskin fighting against um, someone like Jim Jordan. It's the same exact thing. The only difference, as you said, one group are wearing robes, the other one's wearing a jacket, where the other one's just wearing a shirt. You know, I mean, it's it, it's it's just where we are right now. Everything is political. Everything is vitriolic, and it's divided. And it's now divided on the Supreme Court. The only problem is that the Supreme Court... Um, you know, the justices, they have lifetime tenure. I've always had a problem with it, even before I was a lawyer, even well, I think when I was in junior high school and we were learning about the tripartite system of this government and so on, I never understood. And I remember asking my teacher, can you please explain to me how someone could have a job for life? What if they suck at it? 
And he goes, Michael, you can't use that kind of language. I'm like, no, seriously. Like, what if they really fucking sucked at their job? And he says to me, you really can't use that language either. And I was like, I get it. But what if they, what if they were just the worst? And they make all the wrong decisions, then what? And we got into a full-length discussion about the fact that unless they step down on their own, there's nothing that we can do about it. And I never, he never brought up, which now bothers me, that they never had a code of ethics. I never understood that when I ultimately learned that the Supreme Court has no code of ethics for their own conduct. And the reason for that is I guess they always held themselves to be above doing anything wrong. Well, when you have a billionaire flying around to justice, buying multiple properties of his family, whereby this justice is being uh, compensated and, and enriching himself financially, yeah, this to me sounds like a problem, and it sounds like maybe they do need a code of ethics. Maybe the Supreme Court, as we used to know it, is no different than the commander's of um, The Handmaid's Tale. Maybe it's the same thing, that they've now become judge, jury, and executioner all in one, in one swoop. You know, it, to me, I'm just disappointed because the polarization that now even exists on the Supreme Court, which it's not supposed to be, it certainly, it exists. Well, let me move on and ask you um, in, in furtherance of that. Do you think that there'll ultimately be any consequences for the, you know, for the Thomas Harlan Crow connection? Because I truly don't see Thomas resigning. I don't think that's in his DNA. So shouldn't Chief Justice Roberts or the DOJ, shouldn't they do something? I mean, at least even open an inquiry? Well, you know, it's interesting. Chief Justice Roberts, it's they call him the chief, but he doesn't actually have any more uh, power than the other justices do. The only power he's got is to assign the cases when his side is in the majority. That's it. Um, and so it's not as if he really is the administrator. People have explained to me that the court's really basically like nine separate law firms, and each one functions in their own way independently. So so the question, I mean, I think the, the question you raise is, you know, who's got the authority here if there, if the, if somebody on the Supreme Court goes wrong, um, who can, who can, you know, hold it in check? There is under the Constitution the right of Congress to impeach a, a Supreme Court justice. It's only happened. There's been an effort at it once. Uh, I think it was like in 1800 or right around maybe 1804, um, and the the justice wasn't convicted. That was the last effort at this. Um, there have been justices in particular, even in pretty recent times, Abe Fortas was forced to step down. Why? Because he was going to take $20,000 from a, a former client um, as a kind of annuity every year. And it it, 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 it came out, um, you know, $20,000, even if you uh, mark it up for inflation today, looks relatively small compared with the kinds of goodies that Clarence Thomas has been taking. Um, and and Fortis was forced off in kind of a deal, a backroom deal, basically. So, I mean, there is a precedent for forcing a Supreme Court justice off, but but it 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 took a very active 
um, Congress, um, the Senate, it pushed him off. It was the Republicans in the Senate got rid of Fortas, who was a, a Democratic appointee. I don't see the, the Democrats in the Senate having the kind of temerity to do that right now. In fact, the Democrats in the Senate on the Judiciary Committee are in an uproar right now because Dianne Feinstein is on the committee and and mm -hmm. she's sort of in her dotage and she's sick and she's not even there. So they don't even have the regular number of, of, of Democrats on the committee. So, so the Democrats are not prepared to do this. The Justice Department could open an investigation and several groups have asked them to do that. Several important groups and ethic, you know, watchdog groups for ethics. I don't know if they'll they'll do it, but I think um, you know the thing is it's an incredible black eye for the court. It's a it's under a cloud right now, and and I think it raises really serious questions about the amount of money that influences people in politics, even on the court. And you've got these billionaires swirling around American politics. They've got really strong political views. You got Harlan Crow on the right and a bunch of others. Um, and there's some on the left, too, who are trying to buy influence. They're befriending politicians. They're paying for their campaigns. They're, in this case, paying for a vacation for Clarence Thomas that was worth a half a half a million dollars, $500,000. Ginny, Ginny, Virginia, <laughs> uh, Thomas. That must have been that must have been one hell of a trip, huh? One one hell of a trip, a private jet, a private yacht. Uh, scuba diving, you name it, private chefs, um, you know, that it's just whatever the rules, the fine print of the rules say, I think there's a common sense kind of standard. And you know, from your common sense, it's wrong when a judge takes that much stuff from one benefactor. Even the House, I've got to say, the business, they're, they're very, there actually are, there is one set of ethics rules that does bind the United States Supreme Court justices, and that's the 1978 Ethics and Government Act. And it only has a few things it requires really clearly. Clarence Thomas has violated even those very few things. It requires you to disclose any real estate transaction. He did not do that. It's not that hard to understand. He didn't do it. He sold a property to Harlan Crow, never let it out in public, didn't disclose it. And that's a property that that the justice's mother has been living in rent free as Harlan Crow takes care of her house. It, it, you tell me. Sounds like a good deal to me that all my listeners would certainly jump on as well. I mean, you're, you know a lot about real estate, but also just think of it. How... how how beholden are you to the person who's taking care of your elderly mother in her house um, and giving her free rent? I mean, I love my mom. I would be really grateful to somebody who did that. And I certainly wouldn't cross them when they asked me a favor if Harlan Crow were to sort of push a certain point of view on various cases. He says he hasn't. He says he doesn't talk about cases, but he is a big political activist. And he works, he's on the board of a number of organizations that have filed briefs in front of the Supreme Court, amicus briefs. So you tell me, I don't, you're the lawyer. How would you, how do you feel? Well, Look, I, you know, I have someone that's doing that right now for my mom. Uh, that person happens to be my father, right? So I don't, I don't fully understand somebody outside of your own family, right, taking care of your mom. Listen, 
course, it's an uncle, an aunt, or some familial relationship. I just don't understand, um, you know, this relationship at all, especially not of a man who allegedly is a Nazi, you know, memorabilia collector, awfully, you know, strange sort of relationship that exists here. But the thing I want to just to say is you made a statement about Chief Justice Roberts, and I'm not so sure that I agree with that because I do know in the letter that was written by the 16 congressional Democrats uh, to Chief Justice Roberts, one of the things that they said, and I quote, is that we believe that it is your duty as Chief Justice to safeguard public faith in the judiciary and that fulfilling that duty requires swift, thorough, independent, and transparent investigation into these allegations. Now, while I fully understand that Chief Justice Roberts cannot just throw Clarence Thomas uh, off, you know, the bench, but he is the leader of the Supreme Court. And it is his job, as, you know, they stated in this letter, to safeguard public faith. And if, in fact, that he has not done, I think it's absolutely incumbent upon uh, Roberts to open up an investigation into these actions, whether or not it's asking the DOJ to do it. The problem is the DOJ doesn't want to do anything. That's really what I found. Unless you're some poor fucking schnook like me, right? Then they're all over you, right? In 48 hours, you know, holding a gun to your spouse's head. If you're the chief, if you're a justice of the Supreme Court and you're involved in these sort of improper transactions or you're a former president or you're members of Congress, you know, that happens to be paying uh, for, you know, underage sex trafficking, that, that shit's all okay. It's just a problem now of power protecting power. It's really disgraceful. And it, as far as I'm concerned, if this shit doesn't stop, it's going to be the end of our democracy. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, you are right that the just, that the chief justice, he certainly, he launched an investigation of, of the Dobbs, um, the leak of the Dobbs decision, the draft decision. So he, he could do something like that. It was kind of an in-house investigation. But, you know, obviously it would upset the harmony um, on the court among the justices. You've got Clarence Thomas saying, you know, he didn't think he was making a mistake and he'll fix it himself and all, all of that sort of thing. It would be a sort of decla declaration of war among the justices if, if he were to do that. You've also got Congress beginning to say that they really do definitely need to have uh, a, a, some kind of ethics officer overseeing the Supreme Court. I can see that happening, that 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 Congress may impose it if the court doesn't do it itself. Um, an inspector general, for instance. I mean, it's ridiculous that the highest court in the land has the lowest ethics standards and that they're just, ethics is optional for these, these justices. And it's, you know, it's the honor system. And if they haven't, you know, applied it to themselves, then um, then really they're asking for someone else to apply it. I really I think that, you know, Clarence Thomas has made the best case anyone could make for the fact that you need reform of the ethics of the Supreme Court. It's not just the Supreme Court. It's the federal courts as well. When you have justices that really don't follow the rule of law, they don't really care. There's nobody that said it better um, than Judge Jed Rakoff when he turned around and he talked about how it is an uneven playing field between prosecutors and defendants, and they could basically get you to do whatever they want simply by, like, for example, what they did with me, 
when they threatened my wife from a Friday to a Monday. Either I plead guilty to things that I have stated even back then I did not do. They didn't care. They didn't care. And I believe that there should be oversight. And to this day, I still can't get an inspector general to open up an investigation despite all the information that has slowly leaked out. So, yeah, I'm all for ethics uh, across the board from the Supreme Court all the way down to these federal court judges. You know, now I'm not saying that all federal court judges are no good. I'm just saying all you need is one. Remember, I think it was, uh, uh, what was his name? Joe, uh, the crazy Joe, who was the, the um, principal in that school that they did the movie about, where he goes, well, what if you have, you know, one bad apple? What if you have, what if you have 10 bad apples in a bunch, right? That's the whole problem. 10 of them destroys the entire whole, because even though there could be a thousand, 10 becomes the denominator for improper behavior, just as Clarence Thomas will be the denominator for the Supreme Court. But I want to ask you this because it was really ProPublica that broke this um, Clarence Thomas story and the, Wall Street, and the Wall Street Journal, which, I mean, they're both notoriously, it's right-wing paper, you know, went after them for being left-leaning. But wasn't ProPublica founded by a Wall Street journal, uh, journal editor and publisher, right? Because doesn't ProPublica lean in any direction but what is and isn't legal? Isn't that what they're about? ProPublica is, 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 was ex exactly, you're right, founded by two of the top people at the Wall Street Journal. So it was really ironic to have the Wall Street Journal's editorial page slamming ProPublica's left-leaning. It was founded by Paul Steiger, who was the managing editor of the Wall Street Journal for many years, highly respected, and also by uh, Richard, they call him Dick Tofel, who was the assistant publisher of the Wall Street Journal also for a number of years. So, and, and not only that, but Jesse Isinger, who is the editor of this coverage, of Clarence Thomas is a Wall Street Journal reporter before. He was a veteran of the Wall Street Journal and he won a Pulitzer. These guys are good. Um, and they will call it as they see it, whatever direction it goes in politically. And you know, the thing is, nobody has denied the facts in these stories. They can say they they can say it's politically motivated or whatever else they want to say, but you know what? The facts are the facts are the facts. And the facts are holding up. And Clarence Thomas did not disclose what he was supposed to disclose. And he has been now exposed to have this really unseemly relationship with a billionaire who's very active in politics and in legal cases. It's 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 a real problem. I I'm, I wanted to respond to what you said about the uh, lifetime tenure on the court because your your feelings about how it would be better not to have them there for life are shared, according to polls, with most Americans. People really want to see term limits for, for judges and, and including the Supreme Court justices. They want to see, you know, maybe it'll be a longer term, but most people agree with you that lifetime might be too long. So that's yeah. another thing. That yeah, might I mean, I, uh, other than judges, I really just can't think of anybody else who has a lifetime appointment other than a dictator, right? A monarch or, right, uh, you know, a supreme leader. Now, I want to jump. I want to jump to another topic, which is just you know dominating the news cycle right now. Because you have a history of writing about Fox News, and I really like to hear your opinion on the Dominion lawsuit. Because to me, it looks like that they did not settle. 
right? Everyone was talking about how it was looked like it was settling because yesterday they took a day off and that the trial will begin this week. What do you predict is going to happen? I mean, the trial really has begun. They've picked a jury now. Um, so, I, you know, it's I, I'm, I'm just a reporter, not a soothsayer. But and I generally root for the press and against anyone bringing a libel suit because I'm, you know, pro press as a, just as a reporter. But in this case, I think it's a really, really important lawsuit in terms of showing that you can go too far and some things are not journalism and telling lies on purpose willfully. It's not journalism. That's propaganda. What they were doing. Um, they, 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 and I think for me, as someone who has covered Fox for a long time, and I knew Roger Ailes, who was one of the people who really set up Fox News, and um, I've I've been in touch with members of the Murdoch family to, as you know, interview subjects. I in, interviewed one of the sons. We have a piece about it in the in the uh, New Yorker magazine. Um, I, you know, I I, I found some surprises in 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 the the documents that have come out so far in the discovery and to me the most surprising thing is that you think of Rupert Murdoch as kind of like king of the world at Fox News and doing whatever mm -hmm. he wants to do in fact what you see is he and a bunch of the other top executives were running scared of losing their audience. They're afraid of losing ratings. They're afraid that the, the stock price of, of, of Fox is going down because they, they were afraid that if they told their audience the truth, which was that Donald Trump was not reelected, that they would lose their audience. And so when it came down to choosing between telling the truth, which is what journalists do, um, or or hurting their business, they went with their business. That's not journalism. That's that's a corruption of journalism. So for that reason, I think this this trial is really important in showing that that's not what journalism's about. And and they deserve if if it turns out that that they showed what they call actual malice, meaning they knew what they were saying was wrong and they did it anyway. They they deserve to be found guilty. Um, that's what the that's what it's it's it that's where the line is that you don't cross when you're a reporter. If you know something's wrong, you don't print it. You don't say it. You know that that's key. I look. I totally agree. I, I mean, totally the most interesting thing to me though was the extent to which they are not. They are the servants of the kind of of the monster they created which is their audience they have they have spun these people up along with with Trump to to believe in lies and then their audience doesn't want to hear the truth they'll turn the channel and go to some other organization that will lie to them rather than stick with hearing the truth and so that's that they helped create that frankenstein that was that was really their um the way they made money and they were afraid to lose money and that's what this trial is about. And that's when you may recall Trump and his uh, acolytes decided that they were going to tell Fox viewers, especially after they called, I think it was Arizona uh, for Biden, which ultimately you know, gave Biden the win. Uh, <laughs> he then turns around and he starts going after Fox News especially when they when Fox and the Post and the rest of the, you know, of the companies that are controlled by the Murdoch family started attacking Trump. He told everybody to leave and go over to Newsmax, to OAN uh, or, you know, some other alternative uh, to Fox, which is where they went uh, really 
they really went to the dark side here. This $1.6 billion defamation case, you know, a lot of people say, oh, my God, this is going to put Fox out of business. And so and that's not true. Just to give you an idea how much money that they made, Fox News is sitting with like $5 billion in their coffers right now. They could pay this $1.6 billion suit tomorrow if they wanted to. And if, in fact, that Dominion Voting Systems is able to prove the damages, that's, what, that's the part of this trial that I'm most interested in, is to see how they prove the damages um, you know, for it. But I don't want people to forget This is not the only case against Fox News and voting machines, because there's also, I think, a $3 billion lawsuit that was filed by Smartmatic against um, Fox as well. And that trial will be coming up soon as well. So just as soon as they finish with, you know, this lawsuit, you know, they have to now still contend with the Smartmatic lawsuit, which in all fairness, it seems very uh, apropos that, you know, they were such big backers of Trump who every single day appears to be having to deal with another lawsuit, you know, that's coming against him. You know, a lot of people don't know this. My my lawsuit against Trump, which was started in 2019 for the legal fees, is ultimately coming to trial in July. Now, that's also not to say that I don't have uh, two subpoenas within which to be deposed and for documents uh, sent to me by Trump's legal counsel on the Tish James case. That's another case he has to contend with or the a district attorney of New York's case. But now I also have to contend with a $500 million lawsuit uh, for defamation brought on by Trump in once again, uh, you know, uh, his, you know, circus, you know, um, clown car of, um, of counsel. Well, you know, Michael, what they always tell us reporter is tr- reporters is truth is the ultimate defense. So you tell the truth and you're not going to be found guilty of defamation. And so you ought to be OK, but maybe you got to pay all those legal fees in between. If I could just be a reporter for a minute, what's the status of the suit? I know he's threatened to sue you. Has he actually sued you yet? Has he served you? Yeah, I was actually served yesterday. um, And I have now uh, brought on counsel, uh, very competent counsel, to say the least. You're not joking when uh, you turn around and you say that this is expensive, even though his suit is baseless. It's meritless. All you have to do is Google it, not by me, uh, and certainly not by my lawyers, by I think almost every lawyer that's out there has looked at this thing. And in fact, some believe that he's actually hurt himself in this lawsuit by acknowledging the things that I said were true. Uh, I mean, look, it's a, it's a stupid lawsuit on so many different levels, but, uh, my goal is to ensure that he is held accountable. And in fact, it was very nice. American Patriots, a guy named Adam uh, Parkmenko, went ahead and uh, opened up a GoFundMe. We've actually raised uh, quite a substantial amount of money. We're far from where we need to be uh, as this case you know, um, goes forward. But it's a heck of a chunk of change to have uh, you know, raised in this GoFundMe, to be honest with you. And uh, as more of the information comes out and I continue to 
be transparent about what's going on and keeping you know my listeners and keeping uh, you know the American public knowledgeable of this lawsuit because again this is not a lawsuit that he should have brought. It's going to open up a ton of information uh, which people want to know and they will find out. I will continue to um, post it and continue my GoFundMe. Have you said who the lawyer is that you've hired? I have not. It's not one. It's actually two, um, two different firms. Yeah, uh, for this case. You know, when you get served with a $500 million lawsuit by, you know, a wild man, by a former president and a guy who, uh, you know, will probably be the Republican nominee unless, you know, he ends up in prison, uh, the Republicans uh, smarten up or he chooses not to do it on his own, he will most probably be the nominee. And so, you know, there's, I'm taking no chances uh, on this. And more importantly, I want to ensure that he's held accountable. It's something that I have uh, said so many times. I will not allow history to remember me as the villain of Donald's story. This is his story, not mine. So, look, let me just continue forward and ask you regarding Rupert Murdoch, because where is Rupert in all of this? I mean, is he is he losing his grip, as they say? I mean, did he overplay his hand? The way I see it, because at this point, is it possible for Murdoch to win or find an upside to the Dominion lawsuit? Again, because it's extremely important in terms of what will happen with the Smartmatic case. I don't see this as a win. I don't know anybody who um, works at Fox who's very optimistic about winning this case. Um, th there's a there's a lot of trepidation about it. I, I, th I I've been very interested to see the documents that have come out involving you know emails back and forth with Rupert Murdoch because it's always been a bit mysterious what how he controls the Fox Empire and and. What you can see in the emails is um, he has kind of a very understated touch. He's he, he doesn't he's not somebody who's threatening thunderbolts and banging his fists on the table. He's if if anything, he's a little bit kind of like Godfather, like in the way that you know he just mumbles a little word here or there, and they know exactly what he means. He'll say, you know, maybe you should have a chat with so and so, and they know that means like fire the guy. Um, you know, it's it's he's he's a very understated voice in these things, yet also obviously the ultimate control when he weighs in. Um, there was a, an amazing story on him that came out in Vanity Fair. I don't know if you had a chance to read it, um, but it was uh, by Gabe Sherman that had a lot of details about what Rupert Murdoch's life is like now. You know, I mean, he's in his 90s and you would think, well, that's that, you know, maybe he's losing his grip. He's had a lot of health issues that were really, really serious. But um, at the same time, um, <laughs> you know, he seems quite in command of a lot of things, including his love life, where he he dumped his his most recent former wife, Jerry Hall, um, who had been married to Mick Jagger. He just by an email. It's brutally cold. You take a look at this. It's it's kind of interesting to see how these guys operate. He sends her his wife an email. She's expecting to see him show up at their country house, and instead he sends an email saying, "You know, we're basically we're done. Sorry, 
I'm busy, have a lot of things to do, have my have your lawyer talk to my lawyer. Bye. <laughs> and that's the end of the marriage, you know. And then he he actually did have a new girlfriend that he was planning to get married to, and that's now off. But um, you know, he's a he's a chilly, cool operator, and that's what comes through in, in this. And he's someone who loves um keeping up with the news. He's he's a, a newsman at heart. And it's been an interesting dance watching him with with uh, Trump because everyone knows that privately Rupert Mur Murdoch has described Trump as words that I wouldn't even use on the air here, but as a certain kind of idiot. Um, and um, and yet uh, Murdoch has always wanted to have a president who was on his speed dial in the in the United States. And that's what Trump was for him, someone he could call, be on a first name basis with. And Trump seems to have been equally attentive to Murdoch all the way through this. They it was a it was a, a a dance of two. It was a duet that they did, you know, and it and helping each other hold on to power and money. Um and uh and it it worked until until the big lie. And and now the question is, will there be accountability for one or both of them? And that's what we're kind of waiting to see. Will this system work to hold people accountable who've lied to the whole country and undermined democracy or not? Yeah, well, look, you know, Rupert used to live in the building that I lived in. He that did? I currently live in. Yes, he did, when he was married to Wendy. And I'll tell you, I used to work out with him down in the mornings. He's an early riser. Uh, he is as pleasant as anyone that you've ever met. When I see and I hear the things about Rupert, it's certainly not the Rupert Murdoch that I would meet downstairs in the gym at like 6 a.m. in the morning, right? He of course had his trainer. I mean, he was chatty. He was kind, um, you know, and he was actually quite humorous. Um, and so I understand this duet as you appropriately put it the duet is for donald it was about loyalty and praise as long as the new york post as long as fox was kissing his ass that was great for him and rupert was the greatest the second that they started with the trumpy dumpty or they started turning around and claiming that trump lost the election that's where trump draws the line but for rupert it's not about having Donald's loyalty to him. It's all about making money. And yeah, uh, if that means having access to the president of the United States to come on all of your shows, whether it's the Hannity uh, show, whether it's Tucker Carlson, Fucker Carlson, as we like to call him on this show. But one of the things that I found interesting in, from this lawsuit is that the filings really exposed the network. That's one thing for sure. It exposed Tucker as being a fraud. It showed uh, the fact that um, Rupert Murdoch himself rejected the conspiracy theories about Dominion, um, despite you know allowing the you know the the network to continue to promote the falsehoods. And trust me, I know all about this. I live this crap going back to five years ago when all of this bullshit about me with being in Prague was going on or my phone showed up somewhere banging off of a cell tower in Czechoslovakia or, you know, paying off uh, $10 million or so to a bunch of compromats or things like that. I know what happens when, you know, the lie 
becomes or tries to become the truth. Um, you had contempt for Donald by people like Sean Hannity or Laura Ingraham, but it didn't really matter, right? It just didn't matter for any of them because, as I said, when it comes to Fox, when it came to Rupert, it's really all about nothing more than the bottom line. And when it came to um, Trump, it's really all about being stroked, having his fragile baby ego stroked. But let me ask you this then, because in your opinion, are Fox News viewers aware that they're being lied to, right? I mean, maybe they just want to hear the Fox point of view. So putting that into perspective, truthful news doesn't really matter to them. What's your opinion on that? Well, I have to believe that truthful news always matters and that people need to hear things they don't like to hear, whatever their position is. You know, whether you're on the far left or the far right, you've got to hear what's true and deal with it, not be a, you know, as they call them, a snowflake that can't deal with the truth. I I, I, I don't know whether the audience believes it or not. I think, you know, that the question for me is whether... Rupert Murdoch and the people who run Fox ever believed it. And I think what you can see from these filings is they didn't. They knew better. They were ripping off their viewers. They were doing this in order to make money. As you say, I couldn't agree with you more. And I guess the other question I've got, and I really would love to know what you think, is does Donald Trump know better? Does he know he's lying? Or does he just not care and somehow the whole thing is just a blend of everything's a lie? Uh, or is he out there knowing he's lying and 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 just basically pulling it over on, on the voters? What do you think? It's a combination. First of all, I think he knows that he's lying, but his goal is to lie, promote the lie, have others regurgitate the lie, so that the lie ultimately becomes the truth. I mean, it's a very Stalinesque approach, right, to you know, to politics and to controlling uh, the minds of you know your followers. Uh, do I think that he knows all the time? I think after a while he starts to believe his own bullshit, which is why so many people will just say he's you know um, a sociopath. You know, it's one thing if you know that you're lying and you're doing it for a purpose, but after a while, I do believe that he convinces himself that the lie is actually the truth. Um, I don't believe, I don't that believe that he thinks that he won the election. I'm pretty sure that he knows that he didn't, but he was looking for a route in order to steal the election very much like he would turn around and tell you that, you know, Gore probably won the election and that Bush stole it from him. He believes that in the in the Vladimir Putin methodology, which is this is crazy. It doesn't matter who you vote for. All that matters is who's counting the votes. And that's his ideology. That's his belief. So if he was able to pull this off, rest assured, there would be no 2024 election. He would figure out how to stay on for a third term, whether it be to create a war, whether it be to try to change the Constitution. His sole goal is to become the supreme leader of this country, to become the Vladimir Putin of America, which is crazy. But... I want to ask you, since we're on Donald Trump, which, as Stormy would tell you, is gross. Trump and his kids, 
They promised not to use the White House to do international business. They promised not to use the White House to do business at all. But it's really basically all that they did during the presidency. In your opinion, do you think that any of them will ever be held accountable for profiting off of the presidency? No, <laughs> not unless they did something that's illegal. Um, I do. I've always thought, though, that the that the the big arguments that that uh, the Trump side makes about Hunter Biden and making money off of Burisma, which is unseemly, I think. Um, but I think I've always thought the story was a projection and an effort to try to deflect attention from what the Trump ch children were doing. Um, they make an issue of the, of, of the other guy's kids in order to try to keep people from looking at, at, at what they're doing. And, um, you know, if they break the law, I think if they crossed the law, I do think there would be accountability, but I'm not sure they broke the law. I think they just sort of exploited the access that they had to world leaders, to the, you know, Saudi investors and, and, and things like that. Don't you? I'm well, no, no, I, I, I do. I see it as much bigger than just exploiting Saudi. First of all, if you know the Saudis, and I know the Saudis, I know several members of the royal family, I can tell you that they are, inc they are incredibly shrewd. Incredibly shrewd. It's all, to be honest with you, the Saudis, dealing with the Saudis is very similar to dealing with Israelis. All right? They, they just have that, you know, um, that way about them. So, there's no way in the world that Mohammed bin Salman gave Jared $2 billion to open up this hedge fund that he opened, this investment fund or whatever type of fund that it is, simply out of friendship, simply because Jared is such a Talmud Chacham, right? He's such a genius amongst geniuses uh, when it comes to real estate. In fact, Jared is known in New York as being one of the worst real estate guys who made the biggest blunder. I'm not saying it to be nasty. I'm saying it because it's true. He made the biggest blunder in real estate history in New York with the acquisition of 666 Fifth Avenue. That's a deal that should have bankrupted his entire family. Instead, somehow or another, they end up getting uh, individuals to, um, to finance out the property and somehow they end up not just not going bankrupt as a result of it, because they had all sorts of personal guarantees and cross-collateralizations. They end up putting $200 million, I believe, in their pocket uh, onto it. But the Saudis are incredibly, incredibly astute investors. They have an entire finance committee, and none of the members on the finance committee felt that Jared was respectable enough to be running their money, least of all $2 billion. On top of that, Ivanka ended up with like, what, 100 different Chinese patents or something like that after when she got out. This, according to Vanity Fair, actually according to multiple different sources, Jared and Ivanka made up to $640 million while they were working in Washington, right? Could you imagine this? $640 million. To me... It sounds like there's a problem. To me, it sounds like there should be an investigation. Maybe maybe Donald gave the Saudis some sort of a break on some of the military equipment that they bought. 
Maybe instead of the F-14 uh, you know, or F-15 fighter uh, jet costing $1 billion, maybe he gave it to them for $750 million. And since they bought a whole bunch of them, you know, he could say that he gave them a bulk deal, that it's a good way to do a deal. But in fact, 50% of it they got to keep and 50% would go to Jared's hedge fund or something like that. You know, I... Well, we don't know because we don't have access to that information, but I don't give a shit what anybody says. You pulled down while you're working in the White House to senior advisors, $640 million. You come out, you get $2 billion from the Saudis and a couple of hundred million from the, whether it's the Emiratis or Gulf Coast uh, country, you know, um, governments. To me, there's a real problem. Let me just say one last thing. You know that there's a problem. You know, you know there's a real problem in the relationship when after the death and the um, dismemberment of a United States citizen, right, Jamal Khashoggi, a journalist, the very first phone call from Mohammed bin Salman to anyone is Jared Kushner. That's a real problem for me. Well, you'd make a good assignment editor, and I would accept that assignment to go dig into that. And I do think if somehow Trump does manage to get reelected, this will all be back on the front burner for many investigative reporters. People will dig into it. And I, and all I was going to say was, I, you know, in a way, we're back where we started on the, on the show with, with Clarence Thomas and the big money backer who's at his side paying for all these things. These are not, everybody knows, these are not just friendships. These these are business relationships. They're transactional where things are expected of both sides. And 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 these neither neither um Harlan Crow nor the Saudi princes are born yesterday. And, um, you know, these are Mm -hmm. tough wheeler dealers and they are making a beeline for the people at the top of our democracy. And it matters a lot. So I I think it's, you know, it's an area where the reporters need to absolutely dig into. You recently wrote an incredible, an excellent, excellent article in The New Yorker that was entitled Trump's potential trials are a one man stress test of the legal system. Would you do me a favor? Tell my tell my listeners um, about the article and how you think that our court system is going to hold up. Well, you know, this was one of the best interviews that was in that story was of one Michael Cohen who predicted you were the one person I interviewed who predicted that Trump, even if he were defeated in 2020, would not leave the White House. And that not only that, but that the most dangerous period would be right after the election. You saw it coming. Um, you know, I think that, you know, the question is obvious that 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 he's an incredibly powerful figure. And can the courts really treat him like any other uh, defendant and 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 put him on trial? But Alvin Bragg is certainly trying to. Um, and, you know, and he's and it's only the beginning. There are this is going to be an amazing season of 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 trials and of uh, an effort by this this country to hold the most powerful people accountable. You know, I remember that interview and I remember you actually laughed at me when I said that to you. You thought that you thought I was you thought I was crazy, right? You were like, come on, you don't really believe that, do you? And I said, 100 percent. I know the man well enough to tell you that if he loses the election, that there will never be a peaceful transfer of power. And worse than that, the that 
he will do something within that month that will change American history. And yeah, so. Wait, were you right? Well, listen, can I just ask you something as a reporter again? So you've got all these cases coming down the, the pike at, at, at him. Um, I'm curious which ones of these you think you're both a lawyer and someone who knows Trump, you know, really well. Which ones do you see as the most likely to end with some kind of um, accountability for Donald Trump? Is it the Bragg? The Bragg case, the Fulton County, Georgia case, the Mar-a-Lago documents case, uh, the Jack Smith investigation in the Justice Department, um, Tish James. Okay, so let me, yeah. So so let me so let me give you let me give you my opinion on it. I do believe that the Alvin Bragg case is, and I've been saying it all along, would be the first. And I believe it's the easiest to prove. I call it the Al Capone theory. You don't have to get him a murder, extortion, racketeering, bootlegging, prostitution, whatever it might be. Tax evasion. Go after the low-hanging fruit. And they have him, in my opinion, on, on this. They have documentation. They have, you know, corroboration and testimony. It doesn't hinge on Michael Cohen. You know, rest assured, this grand jury, they were real. They were not looking to be, you know... Um, opposed to Donald. They were looking for truth. And I believe that's what the prosecutors gave. Now it'll be up to, you know, Alvin Bragg and his incredible team of prosecutors to do what they need to do. Um, they, remember, Tish James is civil. And I believe that everybody keeps saying she's looking for 250 million. Stop it. Please read. That's not what she's asking for. She said a baseline of 250. I believe that she will be able to show substantially more, almost three times the amount. I say the number is going to be closer to 700 million. That's my opinion. Uh, I think that there are some issues with the Fannie Willis case in Fulton County, simply not because the facts aren't there, but because Trump is such an incredible liar that a lot of that goes to mens rea. And I think that may be a little tough uh, to prove. I think the Mar-a-Lago documents uh, case, the or as we like to say, the Mar-a-Lardo documents case, I think that's also um, an easier case to prove. And then the January 6th insurrection, I think, is incredibly, incredibly difficult. Uh, as far as the E. Jean Carroll rape case, very hard for me to say, um, you know, what will happen there. Um, you know, it's, I'm not, I'm not really well informed enough on that case as I should be. Uh, I do believe that it is significant. I believe, you know, I, I believe that E. Jean Carroll's case is substantially uh, further down the road uh, for Donald's accountability than people think. Otherwise, this case probably would have been tossed early on, right? Uh, that's just my opinion. But what ends up coming down, you know, at the very end, uh, I can't, you know, I honestly, I just couldn't tell you. Um, I just want to end, I want to end with one just very fast question uh, for you, because it's I, I, I just want to ask you about this whole abortion extremism nonsense that's going on right now, because the public is clearly in favor of abortion rights. So why do you think that the Republicans are hell bent on eradicating it? And I mean, we all know that the evangelicals, you know, that that number is shrinking and the next generation actually supports women's reproductive rights. 
I mean, they're a far cry from, you know, the ideology of their parents and grandparents. So why are all the Republican presidential candidates saying that they support these extreme anti-abortion measures? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think it's a, a you know an expression of the fact that there's a coalition. The Republican Party cannot, the candidates can't get elected unless they have both parts of their coalition. It's the big business party, the party of sort of plutocratic money, and it's the party of social conservatives, um, particularly religious, you know, uh, conservative Christians who care about abortion. They need both of those two pieces of the coalition to win. And so they can't they really are basically held the 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 Republican candidates are held captive to some extent by this base that they have to cater to, even if it's going to hurt them. It'll help them in the primaries and hurt them in the general. That's their problem right now. So- and that's why I constantly tell everybody, make sure that you vote. Your vote counts. Your vote is extremely important. Jane Mayer. Thank you so much. It's always good to see you, my friend. And um, let me come up with some more predictions and I'll give them to you first. How's that? I love that, Michael Cohen. Thank you so much for having me on. It's always fun on your show. I'll see you soon, my friend. All righty. Bye. And now for today's mea culpa. A kid I know recently rammed his Tesla into a tree because he was texting and the car's autopilot was supposed to be doing the driving for him. Tesla's autopilot is not an exact science and nobody should probably be depending on it until all the kinks are worked out. But it comes with the car, so shouldn't the kinks have already been worked out? I mean, the technology for things like self-driving cars seems to be in a trial by fire stage, meaning that we, the public, are the new test pilots for technology that is yet to be fully understood or perfected. AI, otherwise known as artificial intelligence, is no longer around the corner. No, it's here, but most of us have no idea what the implications of AI will be over time, or even what AI is doing at the present. A common description of artificial intelligence is that AI makes it possible for machines to learn from experience, to adjust to new inputs, and perform human-like tasks. We, humans, don't always learn from experience, but AI does. And we, as humans, we get tired, but AI does not. We, as humans, may be in over our heads with this stuff, and everyone, from Elon Musk to Bill Gates, has expressed real serious fucking concerns that we're not ready for this. Stephen Hawking said that he thought AI would put an end to the human race. But that was many years ago, and now we are still here. And people worry it will take their jobs. And that's real. That's a real concern. Because it's already happened in manufacturing and God knows how many other industries. The idea of AI is that will it simplify our lives, but what will get lost as we adopt it? A language specialist worries that AI will reduce language to only the most common ones that are used. Now, there's a company called ChatGPT. Then ChatGPT won't be translated into all 7,000 languages from around the world. So, it's logical that some will be lost. Writing will change. It already has, and some say for the better. Especially folks who use ChatGPT for difficult tasks like writing a grant. The software provides a great template that you can embellish, rewrite, and make more personal. 
but the drudgery of having to figure out a format is now gone. ChatGPT, figure it out so that you don't have to. And I'm not sure how to feel about that. I mean, I read this recently in the Washington Post and I quote, first, the more AI becomes a reality, the less confidence we have that AI will be an unqualified win for the humanity. And second, we don't always recognize the pedestrian uses of AI in our lives, including in filtering out email spam or recommending new songs. And that may make us overlook both the risks and benefits." End quote. So the bottom line is AI has not been around long enough for us to trust it. I'm willing to check it out, but I'm not willing to do it without some skepticism. Because even this conversation about AI is just the tip of the iceberg. That kid texting in his Tesla thought that he'd be safe because the car was driving for him. Now let's not let that be a metaphor for AI in general, because it would be a mistake to let systems that we don't fully understand or that we don't trust run our lives. Now I'm not saying that we shouldn't embrace this inevitable change, and I'm all for innovation and technology, but we need to be conscious of what's going on and to take it slowly, one step at a time. We are only human after all. And most importantly, as always, thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media, written by Jimmy Jelinek and Paula Killen. Our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth.